Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church, Avon Park, Florida. Jesus identifies the bread with his broken body, and Jesus identifies the cup with his shed blood that takes away sin. And so when Paul says, come in a worthy manner, observe who God is, holy, righteous, perfect, realize who you are, have the right view of who you are, and that is a sinner. Welcome to the midweek edition of Living Faith. The midweek edition features teaching from our Wednesday night student Bible study, FBC 180. Our current series is Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. Did you know that our corporate worship time on Sunday morning is just a sample, a foretaste of heaven? As believers gather to sing praises, offer prayers, and hear God speak to us through His Word, we are, in essence, rehearsing for eternity, where we will, with the angels and the saints from every tribe and tongue, join in to honor and glorify God through Jesus Christ. This series is helping our students understand the importance and centrality of corporate worship on Sunday morning by teaching them what the Bible has to say about why and how we worship as a believing community. So get your Bible and pen and let's join in on Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. What did we talk about last week? Who said it? Baptism. We talked about baptism. I did not have, not that you have to, but I didn't have anyone, anyone, come up and even ask a question about baptism. And I'm just going to throw this out there. In a group this big and this size, I know for a fact there are some of you that understand the things I'm saying each and every week. If I were to ask you right now what the gospel is, you would be able to tell me. And you might even say, I believe in the gospel. But you have not followed through with baptism. You have not declared it publicly through baptism, and you have not joined a local church by being baptized. And again, I'm going to tell you, if you're putting it off and you are saved, you are already believe the gospel, if you're putting it off because you're, I don't know, afraid of water, afraid of crowds, or just embarrassed or ashamed, you are disobeying Christ's command to be baptized. So just you know, keep that in mind. That's kind of heavy, I know. But Jesus asks us to identify with him and to identify with his people through baptism. It's an ordinance of the church. That means it's something that Jesus ordained for us to do. The church has two of these ordinances. Roman Catholicism observes how many ordinances or sacraments? Seven. Can anybody name? Twelve is not the answer. Can anybody name the seven sacraments according to Roman Catholicism? We'll start with the two easy ones that we hold to, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not just Mary, no, that's not a sacrament. Oh, marriage. Yes, marriage is one. Trevor, yes. Ordination or just call it like the priesthood, um, becoming a nun, a monk, holy orders. Confession or call, that's called uh, penance. Last rites or extreme unction if you're sick and want to be anointed with oil. Confirmation, very good. Confirmation is when the, the, the visiting bishop comes and lays hands on you. Supposedly you receive the Holy Spirit at that time and you become a member of the church. So the Roman Catholic Church observes seven sacraments. The problem with those seven sacraments is that five of them, while they are in the Bible as things that happen, like marriage and being prayed over when you're about to, you know, to die, these are not things that Christ commanded us to do 
in church as an ordinance or a way of receiving specific grace for a specific time. The only two things we have in the Bible as when it says, do this, do this, do this, uh, aside from preaching and prayer and singing and everything else we've gone over, is the Lord's Supper and baptism. I want you to understand that baptism is what we call the front door to the church. How many times is one person truly, okay, truly is the key word here. How many times is one person truly baptized? Once. Okay, that is how you enter into, visibly enter, remember, visibly enter the church, the body of Christ. That's how you show you're a part of this whole family now as a believer. Now, last week we went through several steps to try to make you understand that baptism cannot what? Save you. It's not a matter of simply being baptized. When you stand before God in the judgment, if your only answer to the question about why you should be let into heaven, why you have a fellowship with Jesus, if your only answer is, I got baptized, you've got problems. Because baptism is only the sign, okay, the sign, remember, of something else. And that something else is what? Believing. Simple faith in Jesus and the good news that we also call the gospel. Baptism, listen, these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are so great because God shows us his mercy. He knows that we're physical people. We have hands and we can touch and see and smell. And he knows that because we're so tied to this material world, those material senses help us to understand and to grasp things. He could make this whole thing for us simply blind faith. There could be no such thing as the church. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to be with other Christians. Who cares? You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to see the water and feel the water and go under the water. Who cares? You don't have to eat the bread and drink the juice. Who cares? It's just all blind faith for all your life. But God knows that we need stuff that we can touch and see and smell and taste in order to confirm those invisible things that we can't see and touch and feel and taste. We need the visible, tangible things to prove that stuff to us. So when we're baptized, if you are truly of a believer already, when you're baptized, God is confirming to you, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And tonight we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper and how that confirms to you the presence of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and spiritual nourishment. So our question tonight is this. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? There are lots of good answers to this question. We're going to go through this one very briefly. Because Christ commanded us to celebrate this sacrament together with other believers to remember his death and receive spiritual nourishment. Before we begin, um, before we started Foretaste, I did one little Wednesday night lesson, kind of an in-between lesson on the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we went over in detail the different views of the Lord's Supper, just very briefly. Okay, we can do it for pieces of candy. There's another candy opportunity. Who can describe to me the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper in relation to the body and blood of Christ? And give me the technical name for it. The bread becomes the literal physical body of Christ. And the wine becomes the literal and physical blood of Christ. So transubstantiation, Roman Catholic system, 
bread becomes the body of Christ, the cup becomes the blood of Christ. So when you taste it and eat it and swallow it, you are literally and physically eating and drinking the flesh and the blood of Christ. Um, who can tell me another position, maybe one put forward by Martin Luther, the Lutherans? Position on the Lord's Supper, body and blood of Christ and the bread and the wine. Okay, that's not the Lutherans. <laughs> Lutherans. Anybody? Tyler, yes. Uh, yeah, we just said that. But hold on to that thought. That's not the Lutherans, Trevor. The same as the other Protestants. No, not really. Okay, I'll just explain this to you. Yeah, Luther put forward that there's no change that needs to take place. Uh, in other words, it doesn't matter what the priest says over the bread and the wine. There's no miracle that needs to take place to turn the bread and the wine into the body of Christ. All that's needed is for the believer to come in faith. And if they believe in the gospel, the bread and the wine are physically and literally the body and blood of Christ. So you still have literal physical body and blood. There's just no need for a transformation to take place for Luther, especially by a priest, especially by a Roman Catholic priest. Okay, let's keep going. What was the other position that we just kind of two people said? Symbolic. The bread and the juice are simply and merely symbols of the body and blood of Christ. We just simply eat them. It's only bread, only bread, only juice all the time. We just eat them to remember what Christ has done because in very obvious ways they remind us of the body and blood. Can anybody remember that one last position I talked about that is kind of in the middle of all of these? We have two positions that say that the body and blood are physically there. We have one position that says it's not there at all, it's just a symbol. There's a middle ground here somewhere, yes. Okay, that would be Roman Catholic. You can, it still tastes and smells like bread and wine, but the substance is the body and blood. Uh, yeah, what you say? Yes, the body and blood of Christ are spiritually communicated through the bread and the wine. And that was the Reformed view, Calvin and others. So that's a little groundwork tonight. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you have a question about what Baptists believe, a great number of Baptists believe in a simple memorial or symbolic celebration of the Lord's Supper. Nothing more, nothing less than a symbol or a memorial. All we do is remember Jesus. All there is is bread and juice. Um, uh, many Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians believe in that spiritual presence that we do actually communicate really with the body and blood of Christ, but it's spiritual, not physical. And again, the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics believe those others. Exodus chapter 12. Like I did with baptism, I want us to see where communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, comes from. Look at verse 21. Uh, the nine plagues have already come on Egypt, and Pharaoh has still not let the Hebrews go. He said yes a few times and then quickly changed his mind. As soon as the, the plagues were taken away, he changed his mind. Moses says, since you've hardened your heart so many times, this last plague is going to be worse than all the first nine put together. And at midnight, the Lord is going to pass through Egypt, and every firstborn son will die. The angel of death, the angel of the Lord, will pass through and kill all the firstborn children. He gives Moses these instructions. Look at verse 21 of Exodus chapter 12. 
Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, that's like a branch with leaves, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of, um, none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this as a right and as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Number one. In this whole process, this very familiar story of the Passover, number one, the people selected a spotless lamb without blemish, not lame, not missing a leg, no broken limbs. They selected a perfect, blemishless lamb, the best lamb of their fold they selected. And then they killed it. And they put its blood, if you're looking at a doorpost, on the top and on the two sides. And uh, we don't know if it was like smeared. It sounds as if it was just barely kind of touched on there so that you have a spot of blood up top and two spots of blood on either side of the doorpost. So that when the Lord and the angel of death passed through in the night, they would see that blood that he told them to put on their doorpost and he would pass over their house and not strike them down. Let me ask you this question. Did the Lord, did the Lord need, are y'all writing stuff? Did the Lord, I haven't said that yet, don't worry about it. Did the Lord need blood on the doorpost to know whose house to pass over? No. no. What, yes? Oh, well, explain why. He wanted them to prove their faith. He wanted to see tangible sign and evidence that they believed what he was saying. The Lord, did not, the Lord knew their hearts. He would have known that they believed in him. How are we saved? By grace through faith, by simply believing the gospel. But James says that faith without works is dead. That yes, we are saved, we are declared not guilty, we are converted simply by faith in the gospel, not by doing good things. But once we are truly saved, we will show that faith by good works. We will show our repentance. We will show our good fruit. That will just naturally come out by the Holy Spirit through a saved person. There's no such thing, in other words, as a Christian who gets saved and then just does not grow. Does not grow in their faith. Does not grow in their understanding of the gospel. Does not grow in their understanding of the Bible. Does not grow in love with their church family. Does not grow in love with the Holy Spirit. There's progress in the Christian life. And one of the ways you can tell progress is by exhibitions or showing a faith. So while the Lord did not need this blood on the doorpost, it's not as if he was strolling through the streets going, okay, there's a house with that. I'm not going to do that. He didn't need that. He knew the hearts of the people, but the hearts of the people expressed true faith by doing what God commanded. So think about that with baptism. Think about that with the Lord's Supper. 
They cannot save in and of themselves. And they aren't necessarily required for salvation. But when you believe in God, it necessarily shows itself in obedience to the things he's told us to do. So number one, the people selected a spotless lamb. Number two, they killed it and spread its blood on the doorpost of the house. Number three, the death angel would pass over houses covered with blood. This next one's a long point, um, just one long point. God commanded the people to always, always celebrate this in order to remember how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. If you missed that at the end, he says, not only do this tonight, but this shall be a celebration, a statute, a law, a feast for you forever, so that when you come to the promised land, every year you should observe this. Kill the lamb, put the blood on your doorpost, eat the lamb, eat the unleavened bread, just like you did when you left Egypt. And the children will ask you, I want you to hear that, the children will ask you, what does this mean? Why are we doing this? And that presents the perfect opportunity for these Israelites, Israelite mothers and fathers to fulfill Deuteronomy 6 and tell their children what the Lord has done. Way back a long time ago, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather was a slave in Egypt. And the Lord brought the children of Israel out with this mighty act where he slew all the firstborn of Egypt, but he spared us, and we were allowed to go into the wilderness and then find the promised land. That's the, the story that's going to be told from generation to generation in these Hebrew houses because of this. So the Lord tells them to do it forever. Okay, that's good and all for the Passover, but we're not Jewish and I've explained to you many times, I think, at the first part of this series, how we should not try to revert back to Judaism and try to observe all these feasts and things that the Jews did. They have something that fulfills them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look how that happens in Matthew chapter 11. Remember when we talked about all those Hebrew um, and Israelite practices of worship in the wilderness, like the tabernacle? and the temple, and the sacrifices, and things like Passover, and things like um, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of that was just a shadow of the things that were coming. It was just kind of a, for, a foretaste of something else that would be the real fulfillment of it. It's kind of like if you were at your favorite restaurant, and you got an appetizer, and the appetizer was so great. It was the best thing you ever put in your mouth, like cheese fries at Outback or something. Um, that's a good appetizer. Now, I mean, I guess on a good night, you know, you're trying to be really good. You could say, I'm just going to stop at the appetizer. But if you want to look at the Old Testament forms and symbols and the Passover and the feasts and all this Jewish stuff, and you want to stop there, it's like stopping your meal before you've had the main course, before you've come to the end and you've had everything together. That might not be a good illustration because many of you probably just eat appetizers anyway. Um, let's pretend like you don't just eat appetizers and you're going to have a main course. It's like stopping early, stopping too soon. If we don't see how the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Temple and the Tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifice, if we don't see how all of that is fulfilled, then we miss the point. There are lots of Christians today who are really obsessed with taking Christianity back to its Hebrew roots. First of all, only part of Christianity has Hebrew roots. Many of those early converts weren't Jewish at all. They were Gentiles. They were Greeks. They were Romans. They were Asian. They weren't Hebrews. 
They had to learn what all that meant. So if you hear a Christian preacher or a television preacher trying to get you to really get into your spirituality, you can really tap into something supernatural if you'll just observe Passover, if you'll just observe the Feast of Tabernacles. That's all false because all of those promises, each and every last one of those promises, pointed to Jesus. Jesus came, and when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished, it is accomplished. Everything that that stuff pointed to is all complete in me. So that's what we have with the Passover. But I just told you that God said to observe it forever. I just told you that God had a plan that when you observe it forever, you're supposed to tell your children what it's about. So how does this translate for us then? The Passover is no longer. We have Jesus. We have the true Passover lamb. What are we supposed to do now? Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, we're all familiar with some of the language here. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does this all tie into communion and the Lord's Supper? What does it say about the Father? The Father knows Jesus. Okay, that's important. It sounds like he's just kind of saying nice things, but it's very theologically, intrinsically important. The Father knows Jesus. Number two, Jesus, what? Knows the Father. The Father knows Jesus. Jesus knows the Father. Number three, what does Jesus say about the Father? No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. Remember that doctrine? This is a great doctrine. We bring it up every week for some reason. The doctrine of election. Every single human being that ever lived is in their sin and their trespasses. What do all human beings, without exception, deserve from God? Hell. Deserve. That's the word I used. Out of that mass of humanity, every single one of us that's headed for hell, of our own choice, of our own will, from our own sin, from our own rebellion from our own suppression of the truth, from our own ignorance, there's nothing we can blame except ourselves for deserving the wrath of God at, in hell. Out of that, God has mercy and grace and love on some and chooses from that mass of humanity to set his love and his mercy on some. Again, how many did God have to save? None. So what does it mean that God saves any? He loves us. He's merciful. He's gracious. I was talking to someone about this the other day. When Adam and Eve sinned, he really could have just killed them there, straight to hell, and there's no humanity at all. But God loves his church and his bride so much that he chose some to save. You hear what Jesus says here? I know the Father, and the Father knows me. 
but no one else knows the Father unless what? Unless Jesus reveals him to them. So I want you to get this. Jesus, and this word knows is not just about, you know, like I know who President Obama is. Or if I told you I know Pastor John. I know, I know, I talk to him daily. I know Pastor John. This is that intimate kind of face-to-face knowledge, searching the mind of. The Father knows Jesus. They're connected. Jesus knows the Father. (laughs) And no one else can have that unless Jesus enables it. Number four, that's why it's so important that when Jesus says this, Jesus invites us to rest in him. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. I know him and he knows me. You can't know him unless I reveal him to you. Stop. Then he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation. It's as if you were walking down a long dirt road on a hot day and you're sweaty and you're thirsty and you're hungry. And someone from out of nowhere appears to you and says, hey, come to my house and I'll give you some cold water and some good food and we'll just talk for a while and have a good time. That's what Jesus does here. I know the Father, the Father knows me. You can't know him unless I reveal him to you. So come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you a place to sleep. I'll give you a place to sit down beside me. I'll give you food to eat and water to drink. And what does Jesus say about this water and this food that he gives? I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. Jesus, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you to drink of the water of life. Jesus fulfills all these things. Okay, so keep tracking with me on the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26. The Father is there. Jesus is there. Jesus invites us to fellowship with him and the Father to give us rest, to give us food, to give us nourishment for our journey of faith. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go to the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, okay, first of all, verse 19, clearly, what what is Jesus gathering to celebrate with his disciples? Well, yes, but what was was the Jewish feast they were celebrating? Passover. Passover. That was all about what? The lamb being killed, the blood being spilled, and death passing over these houses. Jesus is gathering to celebrate that with his disciples. Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
and after blessing it, broke and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I will tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Number one, very simply, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. The Passover meal in Jewish culture, while it had not yet evolved into the, the quote-unquote Seder that we know today, it still had a liturgy, an order to it. There was an order in which they ate the things, and there was an order in which they said certain things that reminded them of their slavery in Egypt and how God brought them out. They didn't just sit down and eat the bread and drink the wine and eat the lamb without any instruction. It was a teaching meal in which things were given and eaten in remembrance of what happened in Egypt. These bitter herbs are to remind you of your you know, bitterness in slavery. The salt water is to remind you of the tears and the sweat. And there was this liturgy, this order that went on. So imagine if you, if you go to our church here on Sunday morning, you know that we have a pretty established order of service. Anything and everything that happens is typically very much the same. Called to worship, and then they're singing, and then we shake hands. Well, we shake hands, then they're singing, and then we hear scripture again, and they're singing, and then there's offertory, and then there's choir special, and then there's more singing, and then preaching and the invitation. You know how everything goes. And if you look around... Uh, Miss Joy or others don't really have to do a lot of, can you sit down, can you stand up, because we know when those times are. It's just kind of natural. If you go to a church like an Episcopalian church or a Catholic church or a Lutheran or Methodist church where there is a set liturgy, and it's very confusing for some of us sometimes who aren't used to that, stand up, sit down, get this book, get that book, get this marker, and say this at this time, there's always a set order. So imagine if you were at whatever church you go to or if you're in a service like that, and suddenly something is different. Something changes. I don't know. And instead of Pastor Lehman getting up and reading our scripture on Sunday morning, let's say suddenly one of our deacons is going to read scripture. Nothing wrong with that. But for those of us who are used to Pastor Lehman, you know, we might have our heads down doing something else. We hear somebody else's voice and it's kind of shocking. Or what if instead of preaching, Pastor John gets up and he's going to do an interpretive dance for us for the sermon. Wouldn't that be great? Y'all, you center stage folks could teach him some things. That'd be shocking to us for more reasons than one. But one of the main things is that it changes. There's something different. There's something out of the order, out of the ordinary. So Jesus here, well, he should be talking about the Passover. He should be talking about the Hebrews in Egypt. He should be talking about how God delivered them through that 10th plague and set them free. Suddenly, he takes the bread, and he changes the script. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me, as often as you do it. And then he takes the cup, and these cups were to symbolize various things through the Passover themselves. But instead of saying something about the Hebrews in Egypt and slavery and being set free and all that, he says, this is my blood. Now, if you were a good Jewish disciple, which all of them were, you know the order, you know the words, you know how the things go, and you know that this is very different. Jesus changes the order of the meal. Jesus identifies the bread with his broken body. And Jesus identifies the cup with his shed blood that takes away sin. 
The bread is his body, the cup is his blood that was shed that takes away sin. Not only that, but in the other Gospels, Jesus commands his disciples to take and eat. He tells them, take and drink. Participate with me. Enjoy this with me. Jesus invites the disciples to eat and drink with him. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's enough that our Lord Jesus tells us to do these things, but Paul gives some specific instructions in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you drink this bread and drink, uh, uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Number one, the Lord's Supper is about the whole or entire body of Christ, not individuals only. The Lord's Supper is about the whole or entire body of Christ not individuals only. Paul's very clear. When you come together, when you gather as a church, he says it several times, there's an understanding that this is for everybody. Remember what I said about baptism last week? Baptism was a body event. It should be done in front of other people because these are the people that you're pledging your lives to along with Jesus. The Lord suffers the same way. You cannot and should not go home feeling super spiritual and get you an oyster cracker and some grape juice and think you're going to have communion in your room. And you say, I want to read this, you know, I, this I receive from the Lord, blah, blah, and you eat it. I mean, I mean, I don't know if this is sinful. It's just not the way it's supposed to be practiced. It's really something that should be between you as a believer, not just you and Jesus, but you and your church family. It should be between you and people that you have pledged yourselves to in church membership through baptism. It's an entire body event, not an individual-only event. I want you to see this. Paul received his instructions directly from the Lord Jesus. He, he, he doesn't even, no, no apologies and no exceptions. I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. How Paul received that from the Lord, I don't know. But it's interesting, though. These early Christians didn't have the Gospels printed out for them to read. 
But it seems that Paul is familiar with Jesus' words in the Gospels. This gives us some good evidence that the Gospels were being circulated, and Paul, might, well, he was friends with Luke, might have been able to see them and read them as they were being written, because he quotes them here. So Paul receives his directions from the Lord. Three, Paul repeats Jesus' words. Paul says the very words of Jesus. Further, in this same passage, very clearly, number one, we proclaim Christ's death. He says that every time you as the church body eat the bread and drink the cup that communicates to us the broken body of Christ and his shed blood, every time you do that, you are proclaiming the death of Christ. Proclaiming, another word for that, preaching, sharing it. You are saying Christ has died. And what did Paul say? Paul says, I have no other message to preach than this, Christ crucified. Christ crucified for sinners, that he took my sins, I can have his life. That's what the Lord's Supper proclaims. Number two, we declare that he is coming again. Paul says, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a looking forward in the Lord's Supper, not just a looking back. Number three, Paul makes sure that he says that we first examine ourselves so that we participate in a, quote-unquote, worthy manner. Let me ask you a question. If I'm asking you, what does it mean to be worthy? What does Paul mean? How can you, what does it mean to approach the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? We might be tempted to think that Paul means you have to come to the Lord's table perfectly sinless. And a lot of churches has ta have taken this to an extreme. And so some churches might only celebrate the Lord's Supper once a year. And some older Baptist churches, that's the case. And they have a whole week of fasting and praying leading up to it to make sure they're worthy and repented up and forgiven up enough to be able to take the Lord's Supper. I want you to see what this word means. Paul means by worthy. He's talking about having right views. And what do I mean on that? Not just doctrinally, not just theologically. Two things. A right view about God and a right view about yourself. So that when you come to the Lord, these people in the church at Corinth were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were coming together, obviously getting full on the bread and drunk on the wine, having a good old time in the name of the Lord. And Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating at all. You're getting drunk and you're getting full. You're not observing the poor. You're not taking note of each other. That's the problem, because it's not about you. It's about the one another. And so when Paul says, come in a worthy manner, observe who God is, holy, righteous, perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, majestic, and glorious, high above you, and sinless. And then number two, in light of that, realize who you are. Have the right view of who you are, and that is a sinner. I like the word that Isaac Watts used in his hymn, a worm before God. A filthy worm before a holy God. And when you see yourself that way, and you see God that way, and you still are invited by Jesus to come, I know you're a filthy, rotten, sinner, worm, I know that I'm a holy, perfect, and righteous God. 
but I invite you to my table to eat with me. When you have those views in place, the Lord's Supper is a moment of intense grace. You see the mercy of God. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can feel the grace and the mercy and the love of God in the Lord's Supper. Revelation 19, verse 6. Just four verses here and we'll be done. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So this moment in the book of Revelation, at the end of all time, Jesus is about to come back on the white horse, kill a lot of people, lots of blood. Before that happens, number one, the bride is united with her groom. The bride of Christ, the church. Number two, the church is at last with Jesus. Number three, we feast with Christ as a sign of our union with him. Our fellowship with him is a sign of our being made one with him. God instituted the Passover way back then as a sign of his deliverance of his physical covenant people from literal physical bondage. That found fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the priest and the Passover lamb. And he said, okay, Passover's done. Here's what you do now. Eat bread, drink juice, remember me, and I'll fellowship with you. Paul says, though, not only do we remember what Jesus has done for us, we look forward to what he will do when he comes again and we eat with him in heaven. So from Passover to the Lord's Supper to the marriage supper of the Lamb, God offers you this invitation. Come to me. I know you're tired. I know you're sad. If you re re recognize your sinfulness, if you recognize your weakness and your deadness in sin, and you come to that point where you know that nothing you can do and nothing you can say can earn your favor with God and get you into heaven, if you come to that point and you still hear God saying to you, and he does say this to you, that's what this is all about. You still hear God say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come, all you sinners, and I will forgive you. Come to me, and I will heal you. Come to me, and I will forgive you, and I'll give you a place with me at my table forever. That's what God's been saying since Passover. That's what he says to the Lord's Supper, and that's what he fulfills at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read this together, Corporate Worship and Eternity. Read it with me. Corporate worship is a foretaste of eternity as we receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb and a remembrance of Christ's death. So last week I ended with these points. I'm going to end with them again. I asked last week, what should we do? When the, when the disciples preached on the day of Pentecost and all, those people were pricked in their heart and convicted by the Holy Spirit, they asked Peter, what shall we do? 
Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So before we even talk about the Lord's Supper, because I know some of you were not here last week, I want you to understand that your front door into the church is baptism. And the precursor to baptism is that you must believe the gospel, you must believe who Jesus is, and you must be willing to dedicate your life to that. Then you can be baptized and join the church. Then the privilege of being a baptized believer is that you are welcomed to the table to fellowship with Christ at the Lord's Supper. So this week, our what shall we do is, yes, repent and be baptized, A and B. Let's move on to C. Join a local church. Commit yourself to them. And then fourthly, receive the Lord's Supper. Receive the Lord's Supper as a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. When it says to observe it in a worthy manner, again, a right view of God and a right view of yourself. So next time we have it here, and, and it's always explained here, but you might miss that. You might not understand why we eat a little piece of bread and drink juice, or maybe you've never been in a church that does that. That's what it's all about. God saving his people and feeding us spiritually as a sign of what he's going to do in eternity. Some of you still have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's very simply this. You are a sinner. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and if you are honest with yourself, you know that's true. You know that you've sinned against God and against other people. Number two, God is holy and righteous, but he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to take your punishment on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And if you will believe in Jesus, if you'll put your faith and trust in him, he will save you, forgive your sins, and give you a home in heaven. That's the gospel. If you not believe that, come talk to me after. If you don't know what that means, come talk to me after. You need to be baptized. Come talk to me after. If you still have questions about anything, guess what? Come talk to me after. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this night and every night you give us to study your word. I ask that you take the deep things we have discussed tonight about the Lord's Supper. Open them to us. Sometimes these things are hard for us to understand, hard for us to to, to wade through the traditions of our own denominational or church backgrounds. Help us to take our truth from your word. Not what a preacher has told us. Not what a pastor has told us. Not what a Sunday school teacher has said. Not what a priest has said. But what your word says. Help us to understand that. Help us to believe that. If there are those here tonight that do not yet believe in the gospel of Jesus, bring them to yourself tonight through saving faith. If there are those here tonight who are on the verge of baptism, who have believed in Jesus, who have been converted, who, who believe the gospel, who understand these things, give them the boldness and the willingness to obey and follow through with believers' baptism and join a local church so that they can enjoy the benefits of the Lord's Supper fellowshipping with your broken body and your shed blood for us, having the confirmation of the forgiveness of our sins through these simple elements of bread and wine. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. That's all for this midweek edition of Living Faith. Listen in every week for more from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. You don't want to miss any of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Roll Down, Judgment and Restoration in the Prophecy of Amos. 
Our senior pastor, John Beck, will be walking us through that important Old Testament book in the coming weeks. For more information about FBC 180, the youth and family ministry of First Baptist Church, you can go to our website at fbc180.com. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash First Baptist Avon Park Youth. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash FBCAP180. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. Our Sunday service begins at 1045 in the morning. You can find all this information and more at fbcap.net. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time on Living Faith.